Welcome to The Heart's Cry, uncovering the hidden tools of how to live your best life in real life. This podcast was created with the mission to get below the surface and truly help someone, not just skin deep, but truly increase the quality of life for the listeners. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to The Heart's Cry podcast. I'm Tiffany, the co-host. I'm Minister Tish, also co-host. And today we will be discussing domestic violence. Um, we have special guest, um, Minister Myra Cook. She is the Director of Domestic Violence Ministry at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. And she has a couple of guests that she's brought with her. And we're going to allow her to introduce herself and her guests. Um, my name is uh, Minister Myra Cook. And I am the leader of the domestic violence ministry at Mount Pleasant. This all came to fruition because of a passion that I have in my heart for women who have been uh, violently beaten by uh, spouse, boyfriends, or whomever. Um, I came upon Dr. Davis, because her name was given to me by Minister Tish, and believe me, I wanted no one but her uh, after I read her bio and saw that how um, she was involved in this. I asked uh, First Lady to join us because I wanted her to give her take on the mental side of. Um, domestic violence, how it affects the person's mind, whether it be male or female or a child. And I asked our pastor to join us because I wanted someone to explain why the church is not getting involved in uh, domestic violence issues because it's all across the news, all across the nation, and it seems to be growing. So I thought that maybe a, a, a podcast where others across the nation can hear it, but know that someone does care about them and they can get help. So Reverend Davis, can you t- introduce yourself and tell us a little about um, your involvement in domestic violence and also explain, like, what is domestic violence? What is domestic violence? So, good afternoon. My name is Delicia Davis. I serve as a pastor of Callaway United Methodist Church in the city of Arlington, Virginia, as well as the founder and executive director of New Beginnings, which is a ministry set up specifically to minister to holistic persons that have experienced uh, domestic violence or any type of sexual violence. Domestic violence simply is a is an issue for people for all walks of life, and it happens in different uh, forms of abuse. It can be emotional, verbal, uh, physical, or even financial abuse that happens in relationships. Uh, generally, it's uh, either a partner-to-partner relationship or it's a family person um, that is a part of that. Um, and it can happen to people regardless of their social class, gender, economic background, ethnic groups. It can happen to 
anyone. Um, I'm heavily involved into um, helping those who are victims and survivors of domestic violence because I was a victim myself. I'm now a survivor and I know the importance of it. And I also know um, firsthand how sometimes uh, the church and others around uh, may back away from situations like that or treat it as if it's normal relationship issues and concerns when it is far deeper um, than that. And so I, there's a, a calling on my life to be able to share with victims and survivors and the families as well. So what uh, we have been able to do with New Beginnings um, is to set up a place that People can come for counseling where there are three per license, licensed professional counselors um, that work with us, that talk with the people that come in as victims, try to help them um, to become survivors. Some do so right away and um, some it takes a longer time, but the impact of domestic violence can last on your life uh, for months years and sometimes even decades uh, with that. We also provide emergency services, um, overnight stay, those uh, toiletry bags that are needed uh, at that moment. And for some to be able to just get a ride to go somewhere where they can feel safe and protected away from that violence. So I think we're all familiar with like physical violence as a form of domestic violence. But you also um, mentioned emotional and financial. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked because generally uh, when you see physical violence in terms of domestic violence, it is the manifestation of what has already been planted and has been happening emotionally prior to that time. So generally, not always, but generally a person that is going through domestic violence and it has reached a physical point, has already had slurs thrown at them, has been demeaned, has been belittled, has been mistreated. Um, and spoken to in ways that are inhumane long before it reaches the point where hands are, are put on them. Um, that emotional abuse uh, can have a severe effect. We, we know the power of our words. And as Christians, we know that we can speak life and we can also speak death. And a lot of times domestic violence does exactly that. It speaks death. So even though a person is living, breathing, walking and moving around, they don't feel like they can move forward, don't feel like they can uh, really accomplish much. And uh, the emotional abuse teaches that person, um, regardless of their social class or status in life, it teaches them that they cannot survive without the person who is abusing them. And so they give into that. And that's why you'll see a lot of times people who have experienced domestic violence are not in a rush uh, to leave from that situation, to get away, to get themselves to a safe place, because there is a dependency that takes place uh, within not only um, their minds, but also deep down in their spirits as well. And so that takes a lot of focus work from people in different areas of expertise to be able to help them, to be able to pull themselves out and to push themselves forward. Lady Robin, <laughs> maybe you could share with us more like the effects of uh, emotional abuse. So because a lot of people grow up in environments where there's a lot of arguing and I don't know, talking down to each other. So is it always considered emotional abuse or is there like a line? Uh, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So I've been in the field, you know, for over 25 years. 
And, um, you know, as, as Dr. Davis shared, abuse comes in so many different forms. Um, and uh, it, two different people can be in the same situation, it will affect them differently. Um, so many other factors play into how a person responds. Um, it's very common um, for people who are, uh, have been in a situation where they have uh, been victims of intentional efforts to uh, to affect them, whether it's physical, sexual, or emotionally. Um, so it's not unusual for people who have had exposure. You know, you can be a victim whether you were actually were the person who experienced the harm, or you may be a victim because you witnessed someone else. Um, but the effects can be very similar, and so. It's very common for someone who, who've experienced abuse to have very low self-esteem, you know, to have heightened fear that the the harm may reoccur. Um, they may may tend to isolate themselves because they are embarrassed, they are ashamed. Um, and then they often will withdraw. So they don't want to involve, they don't get as involved in the activities and things that they used to enjoy and participate in. Um, or they just, you know, shut themselves uh, all together. And so as that happens, then it has long-term effects on them psychologically. And those people tend to develop what we say depressive disorders, where they, you know, they don't eat well, they don't sleep well. Um, they, um, you know, they have sad mood. Um, they may have thoughts of harming themselves. Um, or they, the anxiety worsens to a point where not only are they anxious at home, but they're anxious leaving home. They be, it begin to carry over into other settings or environments in which they travel. Um, and then there's what we often call post-traumatic stress disorder, where people experience a trauma and then they, they continue to re-experience it. They have intrusive thoughts. They may have flashbacks. They may have nightmares. Um, that um, continues to trigger memories of all that they've endured. Um, and then a lot of people will, um, I would say, medicate themselves with substances um, in order to manage all of those symptoms. Um, and so there's like, the effects are far reaching, um, but you know, you, you can be in an environment and you know, you, it may not affect you as severely because maybe you have a strong support system. So, you know, you have people around you who try to keep your life as normal as possible who surround you, but people who are more isolated, people don't have a strong support system, don't have a strong sense of self. Um, they tend to have much more long-term effects from, from the abusive situation that they may be encountering. What are the steps to get out? Can you do it by yourself? Do you need a therapist? Like, how do you move forward? And 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 will it just affect, like, if it was a couple, does it just affect you or do your children need help as well, even though they weren't abused? So domestic violence affects the entire family unit that is there. Um even as, as um, First Lady just said to us, the not just the children that are there, but even people who may just be around it, if you just experience or witness it, that can leave you with those lasting effects as well. 
Um, when we think about domestic violence, we say violent or aggressive behavior within um, the home or a family unit. And so that could be married or non-married, of course. Um, it could be same-sex uh, situations as well as uh, the traditional straight relationships as well. And it can also be within a family unit. Um, so sisters and brothers, mothers, and kids, sadly, those kind of things happen as well. In that um, everyone that is exposed to it has some type of effect for it. And, and sometimes those effects show up right away where uh, you immediately um, sense a lot of anxiety or you may go through depression or you may um, just have some of the other things that the first lady spoke about, the dreams and nightmares and all that. And sometimes those things don't show up for many years later. We have some people that um, are connected to our system and ministry now that are dealing with stuff that, that happened with their parents 30, 40, 50 years ago and didn't realize that it affected the way that they relate to those of um, the other sex. And so it um, caused residual effects for them. It caused a misuse of trust or uh, unwillingness to be able to trust later, or even that um, heightened sense of fear uh, staying with them for many years. So if they just get into an argument with someone it could be 40, 50 years later, um, may jump back because they are afraid because of something that happened when they were a child. So everyone that has been exposed in any way um, should seek out help, even if it's just sitting down to talk to someone about it, journaling, or um, being able to do some formal work on that as well, um, because it is something just like everything else in our lives that we have to work through and not avoid. So in terms of the children, um, the concern, particularly with children, is, is that um, statistics have shown that children who witness abuse often later on become victims themselves, you know, based on the messages they received, the things that they learned, you know, you know, in their experience that maybe that that becomes a part of the expectation of what happens in relationships, that they have not had healthy relationships modeled for them. And then research has shown that boys often become abusers themselves because of the abuse that they've witnessed um, during, during their childhood. And so they can experience the similar distress, as Dr. Davis has said, that the victim has experienced, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma, you know, that they've experienced has caused distress. And then as a result, these kids may start having difficulties in school, may start, you know, not getting along with their siblings because they see that the way in which people deal with anger and frustration is they hit each other. So they can become aggressive with one another and become aggressive with their peers, um, you know, they may choose to, you know, teens have been known to, to choose to use substances um, because that's how they learn to cope with um, the distressful feelings and thoughts that they're having. Um, and so it's, you know, it's so important that children who have been victims or have witnessed and, and being a, a witness, witnessing it is also a form of victimization. Um, need the opportunity to learn healthy what healthy relationships are, um, to be surrounded about positive adults who who have positive influences on them, who can be mo can, um, role model for them. They need a safe environment, and that's why you know programs out here that can help them 
get remove them, help them, the, the victim take the necessary steps to remove themselves from those uh, abusive situations um, so that they can get a sense of safety and security. Um, and then empowering them, you know, to, to move forward to perhaps get counseling themselves, family counseling, um, helping them to learn how to um, feel good about themselves, but also helping them to learn to be independent um, because they, you know, they may be in situations in the future in which they will have to make some hard decisions about how to keep themselves safe. What about women? Do women become abusers? I will get, you know, I understand like in a same sex relationship, but what in like a hetero relationship, can the woman become the abuser? Like one in four women um, are victims of abuse, but one in nine men are, are victims of abuse. And that's truly underreported because as you would imagine, men aren't going to be so, you know, willing to disclose that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to the world that they've been victimized in that way. And so, um, yes, women can be abusive to men, some of which because of their own um, prior experiences, but sometimes it's because of their own mental health issues that they they can become very violent and aggressive towards men. Mm-hmm. So there's this this popular, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call them famous, but I guess they are a couple. Blueface and Korea, whatever her name is. So they are, they get in a fight about every month and they are boxing, like, and they live stream teeth out, like, like each other's, like they, they box. So they fight each other. So, um, and I don't know who the aggressor is. It could be either one of them, but they do this like every month. They're like in the street, like knocking each other out. So is this domestic violence? And if so, who's the victim and who's the abuser? I've never heard of what is it called? I'm sorry. Is so this blue, real? Blue, yeah, blue faces. Oh, yeah, no, they're, yeah, they're rappers. They're entertainers. Yeah. yeah. But they're they're dating. And this is what they like, like Tiffany said, they do this monthly and they, they live stream it or somebody's recording them because they'll be out on a date and something is said and one gets mad and they go to blows and she's pregnant now and she's missing a tooth. Yeah. So, but I mean, but they're together and they. Yeah. He knocked out her tooth and she replaced it with a picture of him on a new tooth. Like they're <laughs> it's just the cycle of, of, and it's, it's, we don't even know them and they're hard to watch. <laughs> like, so I don't <laughs> know if people would consider her to be abused because she fight like they fight each other. <laughs> like, so. I, I'll say this: my twenty-two year old daughter is, has shared with me briefly about them. I have not watched them for <laughs> myself, um, so I, when I speak, I'm not speaking about them as much as it is some of the the facts that you just shared there. Um, in a relationship, there does not have to be one victim and one perpetrator. They can both be victims and both be perpetrators um, towards one another. And just as as we may think in in a non-domestic violence relationship, we learn how to push each other's buttons and you know how to get to a person. Um, Just in domestic violence relationships, there's not that boundary or limit to cease 
when it gets to a violent state. And so um, there are times that one person may be the aggressor and there are times that both may be. And that still doesn't mean that she's not a victim. That means that she is um, in turn using uh, what has happened to her, fighting back with it. And he probably is doing the exact same thing. Um, I wanted to say something as well. There are there's this syndrome that, and I'm sure the first lady can speak more about it than I could. Stockholm syndrome that comes up, and that is one of the hardest ways or hardest things to be able to help people to break from. And that's when you have these wonderful, loving feelings towards the person who is actually your perpetrator or aggressor. And so that when, you know, they'll say stuff to you, like, I only do this because I love you or in the cycle, which we haven't talked about yet, but there's a cycle of domestic violence, how things start and how it just continues to go around that same cycle, even though it may build upon itself um, each time. And in that cycle, when they're in what's called the honeymoon phase of that, which is after you've been hit, then you get loved on and love bomb is what we call it. Um, when they do that, they they pull you in so much that you feel like you're loved. Nobody else can love you like this. No one else can be there for you like that. And those honeymoon moments become far and few in between, but people live just to have those moments. So they will, if, if you have gone through this for a while, um, you will experience the pain that comes with being beaten, with that comes with being emotionally or physically um, financially abused as well, just to be able to get to that honeymoon moment in there. And so that Stockholm syndrome is where you develop these loving feelings. So you actually make excuses um, for the person. So somebody may say, girl, you need to leave him or man, you need to leave her. And they will say, but but she loves me. He's, he's just making mistakes. Or, uh, or he may say, she loves me. Um, she does good by our children. She just can get crazy sometimes and make excuses for it because within the back of their mind, they still have these good feelings. Um, and you'll see that in other areas of life as well, where people have been uh, victimized by rape or been kidnapped, and they, they actually still have adoration for that person. Sadly, that's the hardest thing to be able to get away from because there's a trauma bond that is there. And so when people go back, even after they have been hurt terribly, that's usually why, because even though there's that trauma, that bond is what they keep going back for that moment, that honeymoon moment. And so that's, I always like caution family members, don't criticize people because they return or because they put up with what more than what you think you would be willing or able to put up with. And so sometimes that keeps people in the cycle of a relationship, even though they know it's toxic, even though they know it's not good. Now, they're probably doing it for ratings since you explained it the way you did uh, just here. But it keeps people involved because they feel that good feeling at some point as well. I mean, the cycle is it's scary because, you know, you you never know how long each each phase of the cycle is going to last. So, you know, there, there is that, that calm phase, which it would, Dr. Davis was saying, where you feel everything seems like it's back to normal. And then there's this heightened tension phase where things, you know, start to escalate, then the violent act occurs. And then that's the reconciliation stage where it's like that honeymoon phase where it feels good. Everyone's apologetic. I'm never going to do it again. 
and then everything seems to go back into normal your normalcy and then here we go again with the tension building up and it just repeats itself and it becomes normal for them and that's part of why they stay in it because that's the cycle that they're they're accustomed to and they you know they hold on to the that belief that maybe this reconciliation this calm phase is going to last longer and longer and the episodes of violence will ultimately decrease and, and often that's not the case Excuse me, I could never understand why when my uncle would be on my aunt and the police would come and escort him out of the out of the apartment, and then two weeks later he was back. You know, he he terrorized the entire family, my cousins, my aunt. He broke her jaw. And then he would come back. He was a hustler. So he would come back and with a fur coat or jewelry or a pair of shoes. And it got to the point where I would say to myself, never would I get involved with a man that put his hands on me. Never, ever, ever. He was crazy. Now, He's deceased, and his youngest son is doing the same thing. He slapped my aunt around. I'm like, come on now. Why would you slap your own mother around? Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I could never understand. But now I, I, I see why. It's just a cycle. And I'm praying that his children does not carry that cycle of abuse any further it's it's I could never understand that Tiffany do you mind if we share uh, at least a basic cycle here for those who may be listening share there, there's different variations of it but I just want to give uh, just the four step basic one and so um the first one is is where there is a calm everything is just peaceful, relationships seems to be good and fine. And then there's what's called tension building. So like little arguments, spats, difficulties that happen in there. Um, and then you'll have the, what we call the incident. Um, so where a person is hurt or whether it's physically, emotionally, financially, or so. And after that, there's reconciliation that takes place. So that's a baby, I'm sorry, I never meant to do that. I'll never do it again, all of those things. And then you go right back into, you get a calm after you re reconcile and go right back into tension building and then end up going around that circle. And what happens is over time, um, in the beginning, those things seem to have the same amount of time, but over time, you spend more time in the tension building. Um, the tension building will not have to be as much as it was before. Like um, they may have taken four or five arguments to get to where someone would actually lash out physically. But then as you've been in a relationship a little bit longer, that person has stayed and maybe even give the appearance that they're tolerating it. That tension building may decrease to just one thing you do and there it is 
um, but then um, they can't wait and they're always trying to get back to that place of reconciliation so that they can experience the calm that is there. And so when people return um, to a domestic violence situation, they're not returning to an incident. And I think people who have not experienced it, that's why it's so very difficult to understand why in the world would somebody go back into a situation like that? They are not going back to an incident. They are not going back for the 10 building, they are going back so that they can have that reconciliation and that calm with that person. That's what they remember. And that's what they long for. And so they're willing to deal with some of the other parts of it just to get back to that. Um, uh, Sister Johnson, if, if I missed anything, please, please add. <laughs> no, that's correct. And I was, I was um, listening to, to, to Minister Cook, um, you know, the law is really complicated when someone is, um, police gets involved because the victim has to go and file a protective order. And it's usually very for just, you know, a very short period of time. Um, and that they are not allowed to be within a certain number of, you know, feet from the victim. Um, and then that person has to, after 48 hours, whatever period of time is granted, that person has to go back to court and request another protective order. Um, and often that's where the problem comes in because, right, the abuse has occurred. They're in a different phase in which they are, you know, they miss them with that, you know, we talked about that, you know, they, even though it was, you know, it was a bad relationship, they love them. They're depending upon them often financially. Um, and so then, you know, they let them back in because they really, um, you know, they, they're willing to sacrifice and hope and believe that maybe this time it's going to be different. Um, and then so often we, you know, again, that person may have had prior abusive relationships or may have been abused as a child. And so often they are, they survive those. So they believe they may survive this. Um, the other thing is a lot of people are probably familiar with like mental gaslighting where they have been told over and over again, um, you know, make, you know, basically blaming them, which is to a point in which they start to really question their reality and really believe that maybe it's me or something wrong with me, or maybe it was not as bad as I thought it was. Um, and so then as a result, again, they open themselves up to re-entering into an abusive relationship because somehow they think it's their fault and not the, not the uh, perpetrator's fault. So what is financial abuse? And is the cycle the same? <laughs> yes. So the cycle is the same. Financial abuse usually occurs either when a person is, is totally dependent financially or um, if there are is a mix of funds and that person is the person in control in the relationship. Uh, so that's when you have to depend on that person or that person has to decide whether or not you can buy the things you want to buy or when bills are paid, when bills are not paid, whether or not you can even have pocket money and, and, and things like that. And so those things, just like... Um, 
with emotional abuse, a person is withholding love and affection from you and it hurts. With financial abuse, they withhold those financial things or the things that you really need in terms of like from you until you acquiesce or submit to what they want you to do at that time. So it keeps that perpetrator always in control of every part of your life. Um, and by doing that financially, um, it generally keeps people from being able to make steps to move forward in their lives. So even if you want to leave, even if you have already determined, I can't go through being physically abused any longer, uh, you'll go back because who's going to buy my groceries? And especially if kids are involved, who's going to take care of the kids? Who's going to pay this um, and all that? So that makes a big difference in the decision-making phase. And that's kind of where our group comes in. We don't just we, we don't have enough money to pay everybody's bills, of course, but we try to make sure that those necessities that people have in life, at least the bare necessities are taken care of. Because you'd be surprised. Some people have gone back because they had Victoria's Secret bras and they wanted to go get those because that's important to them. Um, some people have gone back because um, he has made, he or she, uh, but generally it's been a he that I've dealt with, um, has made them believe that their kids will not get child support or they won't receive the things that they need to go to school to be able to eat. So people will stay in situations long past the time that it's healthy for them to do so. You know, the abuse, domestic violence is about power and control, and we've been talking about that. And so, when we're looking at that, not only are cases in which they're controlling um, their financial access to finances, but also they sometimes there's cases where there is control over their reproductive health. You know, don't allow them to use birth control, um, so they'll have to, you know, keep having babies, and they keep them depending upon dependent upon them. Um, they then they control who they can see, right? They control when they can go out with their friends. If they can go out with their friends, they control if they can see their family. That's why so often, you know, it's hidden for so long because they're not allowed to talk to or spend time with family members because then it, you know, what's going on in their home will come to light. So, what is the remedy for domestic violence? Is the is the only, I guess, cure to leave? We're talking about safety. That would be the most effective <laughs> is getting them out of that abusive environment. And, and, you know, being a believer, I would never say people can't change. I believe people can change. Um, but, um, you know, staying in that environment while they get while they do the work they need to do is probably not in their best interest. So what do you do? If somebody comes to you, what do you do? Like if you suspect or if you definitely know, what do you do? Even if they don't want to leave, can you do some can you do something? And unlike, you know, child abuse protection laws, you know, if a child is a victim of abuse, then by law it's reportable, right? By law, they can intervene. With domestic violence, unless there's a weapon involved, a gun you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, then they're not likely there's going to be police, in, police involvement unless the person is willing to uh, file a protective order and press charges. So I'd like to answer that question from a different perspective as well. I totally agree with what the first lady said, but I think one of the things that you can do um, outside of like 
reporting things into the police. It's just being present for that person, having that ministry of presence, um, because one of the key ways that that isolation takes place is that the victim has to believe two things. Number one, that others do not have their best interests at heart or no one else loves them in the same way uh, that their perpetrator does. And number two, they have to believe that they need their perpetrator. And so when they are at that place, the best thing that we can do is to show them that we do care, show them that we do love them, that show and just say, if you need anything, I'm here. Never push, never try to coerce, never try to force, because remember, that's the very thing that the person is, is processing within, whether or not they're going to get away from someone else that's pushing, coercing, enforcing. So they don't want to be pulled in those type of directions. But it is key that they know that there is someone else, some other physical human being that cares about them. The other thing I would say is that judgment piece. Um, we we tend to do that uh, with people putting ourselves in people's positions or places without having the same experience. Um, and so it's easier to say, girl, if that was me, I would leave him. Or guy, if that was me, you know, I would toss her to the side. But you don't know if you have not been in that exact same situation that that person has. And so we have to be very careful. Um, I don't want to preach about this today, but we have to be very, very careful that we not make judgment because you don't know why that person uh, got into that relationship in the first place. You don't know why that person may be staying in the first place. You don't know what's going on in their heart, their mind, or in their spirit. So not judging, but just being a presence there to help them to know that they are not alone. That goes a long way with that. And then if a person does need that, being equipped and prepared to point them in the right direction doesn't mean you have to pay their bills, doesn't mean you have to open your doors, but find those locations so that if you get that emergency call or you get that emergency text or somewhere around you, someone is going through that, you have it on hand where you can help and equip them to this is where you can go or this is who you can call and if anybody needs that kind of information I can share that today our website has a ton of different places throughout the DMV that you can go if you just need a meal if you need to have somewhere to stay if you need $50 just to get out of town there are places and people that will do that um, and so you don't have to take anything personally but you can always help somebody that's in a situation like that and when Jesus said that we were to take care of the orphans and the widows, the actual Greek that is there is, is talking about people who are in disadvantaged situations. And so it is our responsibility to look after the least of these. And at that moment, those the people that are suffering through domestic violence, and especially if there are babies involved, are the least of those. And they need all that we can do and all that we can be for them at those seasons. Amen. Um, um, Pastor Davis, can you can you um, say your resource so those who are listening online can can hear that? Yes. So the website is www.newbeginningsfoundation.org. And um, when you go there, there's a list of different places that you can go, as well as links uh, for Maryland, Virginia, and even the National uh, Violence Hotline and all of that. I'd like to share that as well. Um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 
1-800-273-8833. And a good resource that they have now that just um, they start, they develop better during the pandemic is you don't have to just call. So if you're in a situation and somebody may be listening and you need help, you can text and they have where you can go to the website as well um, and just put in information. And if anyone comes near you, there's a way to close that out and no one will ever know about that conversation. The main thing is to be safe and reach out for the help that's needed. And um, uh, Minister Cook, you mentioned from the church's perspective, um, exactly what Pastor Davis had said is what we do um, if there's a situation um, with the church community as far as put people in the hands of those who can handle their circumstance. Um, we're full, fully aware that there are um, different situations um, in the church itself. And but if it comes down to um, assisting or to facilitating, uh, we have to use those outside resources. But now that we have created this new ministry, uh, it is definitely a uh, place where they can feel safe as well. I think education is so important because I think, you know, we spend a lot of time with our young people. I mean, one of the one of the risk factors is, is that we're finding that a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s are becoming more and more victims of intimate partner violence. Um, and so we spend a lot of time, you know, telling our kids to say no to drugs and say no to sex and, you know, these messages that we give. Um, but I don't think we do enough of teaching our young men and young ladies about identifying the warning signs when you're entering into a new relationship. You know, some of the things that may be an indication and maybe this person may not be someone you want to invite into your life. Um, you know, that there's signs that that person is, you know, shows a lot of jealousy um, or a tendency to be very controlling um, of their time or minimizing how they feel um, or even show that they have problems with managing their own anger then that is probably someone, you know, that we need to empower our young men and young ladies that these may be not someone you might want to choose to enter into a relationship with. Yeah, even teenagers, because I know my nephew, I think when he was like 15, he was in school with a girl and like her boyfriend was beating her up. And, you know, she lives with her parents, you know, but it was still happening. And I don't even think they knew she had a boyfriend. So um, I think you need to start, you know, with the teens, maybe even pre-teens. Yeah, um, there's teen dating violence that we're, that we're seeing. You know, we, they have their own category now <laughs> because of that. I, I think it's important. Um, and I learned this from one of our um, deacons. He's deceased now, but uh, deacon... Uh, Bonham, John Bonham, and he said something one Sunday, and it just stuck with me, and Rhapsody was not even a teenager yet, and he said it to the men. He said, tell your daughter that you love her. Show her that you love her so that she'll know, <clears throat> excuse me, what love looks like. And that kind of really stuck with me. And um, I had to, well, ask, say to my husband, 
tell Rhapsody that you love her. And now he says it so much, she's married now. But he said it, excuse me, so much when she was a teenager. So she knew what love looks like, what it sounds like. And, and I think that's something that may be missing from the uh, families, excuse me, of some of our young ladies. They need to know what love looks like, what it sounds like. And then if you bring scripture into it, if they knew that there was someone, Jesus, who loves them and loves them unconditionally, I think that would make a difference. That's just my thought, but it, it would it would help. Absolutely. So what about, you know, some people use scripture to justify domestic violence. You'd be like, well, husband's supposed to submit, you know, wives supposed to submit to their husband, even though if you keep reading, it says the husband submit the wife. But what 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 does the Bible say about domestic violence? You know, for someone who may be um, <laughs> you know, deceived into thinking that, you know, their place is to be um a footstool, I guess, for their their spouse or you know, this is God's plan or however people twist things for their own advantage. Um, I can take that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we know that there's been abuse um, of, of the word of God, you know, through centuries. Um, abuse, abusive when it comes to um, uh, uh, causing people to be subject under their rule, their rulership, um, i.e., um, you know, slavery has been justified. Um, we also know that um, through the course of the 60s, um, we, you know, the scriptures were used and even carrying day to day. You can see this new movement, um, Christian nationalists um, forming, but that's not biblical. Um, they, they use it in a term, in, in a sense of, so that they can maintain power. Um, everything that we're talking about right now has been utilized before through uh, under the guise of scripture. But knowing the scriptures, um, individuals, you may not know the scriptures as well as some. Um, and some people do utilize the scripture to um, be abusive, as we are talking about. So that's is, is, is known and has always have been in some instance. Um, but 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 the justification is I know. God's sovereign love for us um, supersedes all. And my thing when I do have these um, personal conversations behind closed doors with those who are abusive is to encourage them to, to get out of it. Um, God didn't call you to be in that abusive relationship. And so um, from our perspective as clergy, uh, we, you know, we, we don't encourage people to stay in that even though it has been um, through many years in the church. Um, some spiritual leaders um, in our community of faith have um, used that as justification or deacons or over their wives or preachers over their wives um, in, in various situations. So I think it's a violation 
for a person um, in a leadership and also a clergy role um, to justify that. And so I don't believe God wants that to be so. Um, now, like our first lady said, you know, she believed that people can change, but I also believe that there needs to be a safe space uh, to get someone to grow into that change mm-hmm. and not be a punching bag or um, someone that they um, use to, to subject themselves to to their feel good or them being empowered type role. I mean, I don't know if uh, Pastor Davis agreed with that, but that from my perspective, um, I don't believe anyone needs to justify the role of scripture to uh, suppress others. I totally agree with you, Pastor. Uh, thank you for that. I And throughout the scriptures, there are incidents where God and then we see our Savior um, actually condemns these kinds of acts. Um, Genesis 22, where it talks about yes. the husband having a wife and then mistreating her. Um, people look at that as, as simply being sexual, but it's not. It goes even further than that. Um, what God does, God deals with him and he she's able to go back to her family. Jesus also taught... Um, to those who were in the temple and said in Matthew 20 that uh, when you, the rulers there are lording against people and exercising authority, he says it shouldn't be. He's like, if you really want to serve God, then you have to first be a servant and goes on like throughout the Bible. We know how we are to treat each other. Um, Jesus teaches us that my grandmama said it as well, like do unto mm-hmm. others as you should do, as you would want That's to do right. yourself. And so if we wouldn't want someone lording over us, mistreating us, abusing us, uh, then we should not do that. And there are strict penalties for people that are in authority um, that abuse yes. that authority. And we have to know that that authority is not simply like people look at it as just being the pastors, bishops, elders, that authority is in any situation you're in. So if you're in authority in your family, and you abuse that, God deals with us for that. Um, we there, we can't run from that. There are penalties for all of our sins. And so we have to be very careful, especially if we're calling ourselves men or women of God, that our actions in front of people as well as behind closed doors are that which bring glory and honor to God and not disgrace to God and to the church. Amen. <laughs> all right, another question. So there's like Al-Anon for like alcoholic you know, whose families, you know, the family member has somebody who's an alcoholic. Is there like an Al-Anon for domestic violence where, you know, you have a family member who is a victim of domestic violence and you're trying to, I guess, cope with that? Is that a thing? You know, the um, domestic violence treatment programs and facilities have support groups for family members. There are some, but there's, I don't, I don't know of a national organization that provides that. Um, in Northern Virginia, there's a Doorways, uh, which is in Arlington, that does provide that as well. In the House of Ruth in D.C. and in Baltimore, um, they provide those type of services for extended family. But I don't know of anything nationally that does do that. Um, I suggest... My suggestion, I'm not your pastor, but my suggestion is when a church has a domestic violence ministry, that there are two components. I always say this, um, the component that deals specifically with those who are victims and survivors to help them through, but also a component that ministers and helps bring deliverance to those who have experienced it and those who are perpetrating as well. It's key. Um, If we really want to minister to the whole person and 
and the whole family, we have to be able to, to peel back those layers of hurt and pain that our people have experienced. Um, I'm working on it as well, Pastor, as I push that out there as well. That's so very key. And even having Bible studies, sermons, and uh, workshops to equip and prepare people, that's the church's mission. That's a, The church started out doing that long before there was anything called a 501c3 out here. And that's where um, the people of God will grow the most if they see that we're doing it not because we gain funds from it, but because we truly love and want to see families be whole. And and we and we know that perpetrators are often victims themselves. Mm-hmm. So is there a, a a type of person that should not be a part of this ministry that that will be problematic to? whoever's coming for help, be it the perpetrator or the victim. Okay, at the risk of y'all not inviting me back, (laughs) I know I'm talking to you. The person who you or I would say should not be a part should be one of the first ones in line for pastor to lay hands. Anybody that has um, an open concern with helping people in domestic violence, generally, not always, but generally, it's going to be somebody who has been around it and has some negative feelings that need to be peeled back in those layers. So either going to see pastor, uh, going to see the first lady, or preferably both, making sure that you have Jesus and therapy to help bring you through what you've experienced. So you said that, you know, when somebody comes for, I'm guessing you should be like a a safe place for them. So like in New York, it is a mandatory arrest state, which means that if the cops are called and they come to the house and they see signs of domestic violence and they have probable causes, somebody did, you know, commit domestic violence, they have to arrest. It's mandatory arrest. So is there... Is it, would it be okay to do that for someone or would that be exerting control over their situation that they chose? So like, I don't know. I don't think that's the case for Virginia and Maryland though. No, I'm saying like- She said in New York. York. In New York. Oh, okay. Well, that would be- Would would that be exercising control over their situation (laughs) Or, you know, or what, I don't know, it might be, is it more harmful than good? Because now you just made, you know, the person mad and they're going to bring them back. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, you you said that they have to have um, evidence. So it could be a probable cause. Oh, okay. There was obviously an assault that's taken place, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, illegal. You can't just assault people. Right. <laughs> yeah. And in New York, you don't have to press charges. Right. The DA can press charges for you. So because yeah. I don't know, because then you I, I would think then you became you're not a safe place anymore. That, what do you mean? You're not a safe place. You like uh, like Dr. Davis said to be like pretty much you're saying be like a safe place for them, like non-judgmental or whatever. So if you know that they're being abused, but it's not life or death and you use this mandatory arresting for them is that considered um kind of controlling them like their perpetrator would be 
So I don't think that you can control that. You can only report that. And if you know that something is happening where a person's being physically um, abused, the truth is, Tiffany, you don't know whether it's life or death. It very well could be on that particular day. And so I think it's our responsibility um, to do so. Now you can make reports anonymously and all of that. And just like you say in, in New York, but DC, Maryland and Virginia, that witness, that person that has suffered through the violence has to be the, has to um, allow pictures or speak in order for that person to be prosecuted. So they still have a measure of control whether they want to move forward with it or not. Even if they're subpoenaed, they still have that um, in there. But if you are doing something to protect them um, by reaching out, you don't know whether it could be the end of their lives. So I think that's always a good call um, to make sure that others are aware for their personal safety as well. And particularly there's children involved because so often children are victims as well, not just as witnesses, but if there's an anger management or there's substance use involved, sometimes the children are also being abused. And I think I would rather a sister of mine or a girlfriend of mine to be upset with me for calling the police when she didn't want me to than for her not to be alive to be upset with me for calling mm -hmm. the police. I can work through the rest. Yeah, right. I know she's safe. Right. Amen. Can we close with um, Dr. Davis just praying, you know, giving us a, a prayer for, you know, victims and families? who are dealing with um, domestic violence, whether you're the perpetrator or you know someone, because, you know, I'm sure it has to be hard to watch somebody like go through those. Yes, of course, it's my honor. Um, let's look to the Lord in prayer. And I say to those who are listening right now, if you or someone that you know is experiencing any type of violence, um, I want you to call out their name now. Whether I hear it or not, it does not matter. God hears and God knows. And let's pray specifically for them. If you don't know anyone that's going through that right now, let's just take a moment and pray for all of those who are going through this at this season. Gracious, loving, kind, and eternal God, we come to you now as your sons and daughters, grateful for who you are in our lives and grateful, God, that even in situations where we feel powerless, you are always powerful. We honor you as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we thank you for how you continue to show your power in our lives. God, I pause today to thank you for Pastor and Mrs. Johnson, to thank you for Tiffany. I thank you for Minister Tish and Minister Cook for them putting together this time so that we can talk about domestic violence and God, that we can help others to come out of situations that can bring them harm. We pray right now specifically for those who are suffering, oh God, in silence. And we ask, oh God, that you uh, give them the right people around them to be the support, the encouragement, and the strength that they need in this time and season. We pray that you will prepare the way for them, show them the path that they are to take for their individual lives. And God, if there are children involved, help them, oh God, to have wisdom and divine 
divine instruction in what best to do for these babies. And God, we pray for those who have suffered in silence, but have made it through. Oh, how we praise you, oh God, that they are safe, oh God, from hurt, harm, and danger. And God, I pray that you will place something in them to cause them to want to go back and help others to get out of situations, to cause them to want to go back and to show others how it is to come out of Egypt into your Canaan land. Bless them to be able to stand up boldly and strongly for you. And God, I pray right now that you will lead each one of your people in the path that they need to be on for their own particular calling and destiny in life. God, we pray right now for Mount Pleasant. God, ask that you touch this ministry in the name of Jesus. God, touch the entire church, the pastor and First Lady God, entire church God, let your glory be revealed in them. Let them see prosperity and growth all throughout the ministry, spiritual growth, financial growth. We declare it is so in Jesus' name. And God, I pray that you will touch this domestic violence ministry, that those who come in will find deliverance, will find peace, will find restoration, will find the emergency needs and everything else, God, that they may be whole and blessed because of their contact with these, your people. So Build up, Minister Cook, I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus, anoint her for such a time as this. And God, as each person comes in, let them not only come in contact with these men and women, but God, let them come in contact with your presence and your power. Thank you for those who have listened today. Thank you for those who are contemplating what to do next. And most of all, thank you for those who are standing in the doorway to be a help and a blessing to those who have gone through. God, be with them all in their respective situations. Bless and prosper them. And we will give you all praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. That was powerful. Thank you for listening to the Heart's Cry podcast. I'm Minister Tish. And I'm Tiffany. Until next time.